uh, anyway, that's where we are. Uh, I want to say sorry, we did not get last week's um, lesson recorded. Uh, so I know a couple of people asked about that. I've got some notes if you want notes that may or may not be helpful. Um, but uh, we, uh, we did not get that. But you can, if you want sermons on election, on the doctrine of election, you can also go back to Romans chapter 9, the sermons on Romans 9, or Hebrew, I'm sorry, uh, Ephesians 1, or 1 Peter. I believe there's some, uh, some sermons as well on there that all deal with the doctrine of election, but we'll, uh, we'll try to get these recorded from now on. So this afternoon, this afternoon, I would like to give just the briefest overview of three of the chapters of the second London Confession of Faith. That is the chapters on creation, providence, and the fall. And as we start, I want you to notice the flow of the Confession of Faith, the way it's organized. The first chapter of the Confession was about Scripture. That is the means by which we come to know God, the primary means by which we come to know God. Secondly, we talked about the doctrine of God Himself, the Trinity. Then we moved into the third chapter, which is about God's basic relation to everything else. And that was the chapter on the decree of God. God spoke it into existence. Now, out of that basic concept of the decree of God comes two chapters that logically follow. His decree to create all things, and his decree that sustains all things, and we call that his providence. So these are outworkings of the doctrine of God's decree. Basically, the decree of God played out over the course of time. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this, how does God execute his decrees? And the answer is, God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. So you see the logical flow of these chapters as we move from the decree then to creation and to providence. Creation is the beginning of God's speaking everything into existence. Providence is his ongoing, the ongoing unfolding of his decree. So we have those two chapters that we're going to look at. And then, Lord willing, if there's time, a third chapter on the fall. This also, the fall of man, is also an element of God's decree, although God is not in any way morally responsible for sin. So we have creation. We have the fall. These are two of the four real shaping influences on human history. If you think of it in terms of these four things, this is all of human history. Creation, fall, redemption or restoration, and consummation or new creation. So that that really gives you a biblical worldview of history. So these two chapters then are pretty important. I'm talking about creation and the fall two of these great shaping influences. So let's start with chapter 4. Okay, class, chapter 4, creation. We'll start by uh, 
looking at paragraph one, which if we're uh, if I was just describing it, I'd use these kinds of terms. This is the general creation of all things. Paragraph one, the general creation of all things. So the writers of the confession say, in the beginning, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. The summary statement of the creation of all things. I want you to point out to you three things about this first statement. Number one, that creation is an act of the triune God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all involved in creation. We read in Genesis, in the beginning, what? God. And what did God do? And God said, so there's the Word. And how? What, what, where's the breath of God that carries the Word out? And the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters to put God's Word into action, as it will. This is the act of the triune God. Secondly, notice that this paragraph states the purpose of creation. And that is, quote, for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. When I was a kid, we had to memorize a poem by a famous person whose name I can't remember. Oliver Wendell Holmes, maybe? For some reason that sticks in my mind. And in the poem, God says, I'm lonely, I'll make me a world. The confession says that God did not create the world because of any need in himself, any loneliness on his part, or any other necessity. He did not create it for anything outside of himself. He created it as a manifestation of his own glory. This is not to say that the creation in any way, adds to the glory of God. God's glory is complete in and of Himself. It is His intrinsic nature that is glorious. But it does manifest His glory. It displays His glory, which is our great good. It is an overflow of the grace and the love of God that manifested His glory to something outside of himself, which he created for the purpose of receiving his glory and even reflecting his glory. So the third thing we want to notice about this paragraph is that it speaks of the duration of creation. Creation was uh, accomplished, it says, in the space of what? Six days. Now, there are some people who believe that God created the world, but that he did so over the course of ages. But the truth is that the Bible uses language itself and a style of communication itself in those first chapters of Genesis that is most obviously understood as a literal six days in which God made everything, the world and everything in it, visible and invisible. So this is the teaching of the general creation of all things, paragraph one. Then we go to paragraph two, which is the special creation of mankind. Paragraph 2. 
after God had made all the other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. There's a lot I can say about this, but let me just uh, briefly go over a couple things here. First off, notice that the confession teaches that mankind was created as the climax, reflecting the scripture, mankind was created as the climax of all of God's creation. God worked all of these six days, and at the end, he creates man as the pinnacle, the climax of his creation. And it says that man alone, of all the creatures and all of the things that God made, man alone is created as the what? Image of God as the image of God. The passage that describes this is Genesis chapter 1. And I want to put it on the screen and go ahead and read that so we are reminded of what it says. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, God created mankind uniquely in his image. What is the image of God? Well, the image of God most directly in the context in which it was first stated is linked with mankind's dominion. God said, notice, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. One of the greatest manifestations of the image of God is God's giving to man a a reign over the world underneath God, a dominion over all of his world. Mankind, in other words, were created to be the under rulers under God's rule. God is sovereign. Man is given a kind of sovereignty, a limited sovereignty under God the absolute sovereignty of God. Secondly, I think it also alludes to mankind's creative powers. God says to mankind in the context of saying he made man in his own image, one of the very next things he says is he made them male and female and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with other image bearers. This alone is man's power to create other image bearers of God. 
God is sovereign. Man is a kind of sovereign over the world. God is a creator of all things. Mankind is told to create other men, other men uh, in the image of God. So all of this is part of the element of the image of God. And thirdly, the confession makes reference to this. It says that mankind was made after the image of God, quote, in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. There's something about the knowledge of God, the righteousness uh, that humans were created with, and true holiness, which is godly, which is a manifestation of the image of God. Uh, and, and the passage that they're relying on for this is Ephesians chapter 4. Here's what Ephesians 4 teaches us about the image of man, the image of God in man. It says that we were taught to put off our old what? The word self is the word for man. Put off the old man, the Hebrew equivalent uh, to Adam. Put off the old man, the old Adam, the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new man, the new Adam, the new self, created after the likeness of God. There's there's the familiar language of Genesis in true righteousness and holiness. So it was Adam's righteousness, it was his knowledge of God, it was his holiness before God that was a part of the image of God uh, manifested in him. Part of this knowledge of God and this righteousness and this holiness was, as the confession says, the law of God written on their hearts and the power that they had to obey it, to fulfill it. The work of the law, Romans chapter 2 says, is written on our hearts. Written on our hearts even before the Ten Commandments. In other words, Adam and Eve had a sense embedded within them of the moral will of God. They were created in this righteousness, in this holiness. This is a manifestation of the image of God in them. But notice it also says that they were created with the possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. So God created mankind in righteousness and true holiness, but he also created mankind with the ability to change. That is, the ability to to not persevere in that state of, of righteousness. Before the fall... We say that mankind was able to sin and able not to sin. The Latin words they would use would be passe peccare and passe non peccare, able to sin, able not to sin. This is the state of man before the fall. Now, it's a different story after the fall, but before the fall, this was his nature. This is part of all of the part of the image of God the special creation of mankind. Third paragraph, we have a special situation in which they were created. Besides the law written in their hearts, they received a commandment not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
which whilst they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. So mankind is created in a special situation. The confession says that that situation was this. They had the moral will of God written in their hearts, and they also received a commandment from God. So in other words, in addition to the natural law of God that was within them, if you want to use that kind of terminology, they also had a positive law given to them, a special commandment that was unique to their particular situation. And the commandment, of course, was don't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was then a symbol or a sacrament of their obedience to all of the law of God. Eating the fruit of the tree wasn't just eating the fruit of the tree. It was rebelling against the God who gave all of his, made all of his will known to them and in them. Their condition then was dependent upon their obedience. And their condition, as long as they obeyed, was that they were happy in their communion with God. Who knows what blessing would have come their way if they'd have persevered in that time of probation and testing. This situation, the situation that it's being described here, God gave them laws and a positive law that if they obeyed, they had life. This situation is sometimes referred to as a covenant. The term covenant's not used in that passage, but it is used in other passages to refer back to Adam and his situation before God. There were conditions stated like we have in a covenant, right? There, were, there was a curse if you broke the covenant. There were even covenantal sacraments or symbols, just like God gave to Noah the rainbow and Abraham circumcision. And to us, we have the Lord's Supper and baptism. The, the Lord gave to them the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, which sort of were symbols of this covenant. So the situation in which they were created was one in which they were in a covenant of, sometimes it's called the covenant of works, right? If you obey, you will live. If you disobey, you will die. Or the covenant uh, with Adam or the covenant in Eden. Um, But this is the situation in which they were created. This is the doctrine of creation. And that moves us to chapter 5, which is the doctrine of God's providence. God's providence. And here I'm going to borrow again from... Sam Waldron for the outline. So what is the providence of God? Well, in a lot of ways, this is just the outworking in time of God's decree. So everything that we said about the decree three or four weeks ago, whatever it was, if you remember that, you can just take that and apply it in time here. Here's a summary statement in in, uh, paragraph one. Take a look. God the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. In other words, God providentially controls all things, all things whatsoever come to pass. 
This is the providence of God. He doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern everything. Is that an encouragement or is that something perplexing? Maybe sometimes it feels perplexing, but I hope that we find it a great encouragement to know that our God is providentially ordering all things for our good. Notice that the unfolding of God's decree is, well, that providence is just the unfolding of God's decree across the landscape of human history. The God's providence has the same source as his decree, namely himself alone, his power and wisdom, has the same scope as the decree, all things and creatures, has the same character as the decree, it is most wise and holy, has the same basis as the decree, it's according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, and it has the same purpose as his decree, that is, to the praise of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. This is the outworking of God's mind, God's plan with throughout human history. Remember, God, as it were, stands outside of history, but his plan unfolds for us within history, and we can be confident that all things are in his care. Letter B, um, paragraph 2 through 7, uh, this is the special concerns uh, of the writers of the Confession about this doctrine of God's providence. So what are their concerns? Number one, they're concerned about the relationship of providence to the use of the means of grace, to the use of means. Paragraphs 2 and 3. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, that is God's the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly so that there is not anything befalls any by chance or without his providence, yet by the same providence he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. In paragraph 3, God, in his ordinary providence, maketh use of means, and yet he is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. The past two lessons that I've given you on the confession, we've talked about God's decree and His providence um, and how, they, how, how God makes use of what's called secondary means to bring about what He's chosen to do. In other words, God not only ordains that something come to pass, but He ordains that certain things that cause that thing come to pass from a secondary causation standpoint. In other words, God's providence encompasses the actions and the activities of men, animals, the forces of nature, all of these things that we say caused something to happen. A man chose something and that caused something. A hurricane came and that caused something. We say that God is the ultimate cause, but his causation involves the ordaining of second causes. That is, means to accomplish. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. 
Proverbs 21, you don't have to look it up, but God says that the outcome of battles is actually ordained by whom? God. God's in control of how the battle goes, whether this side wins or that side wins. And yet, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 18 says that victory in battle is going to require you to do some careful planning and get some wise guidance. And the person who plans well and he has good guidance, he'll prosper. Here, God has ordained it, and yet he uses these means, these ordinary means, to bring his um, will about. Same thing in uh, Ephesians chapter 1. The Bible says that God works everything according to the counsel of his will. And yet James says, you do not have because you do not what? What does God do? God has ordained the end, but he's also ordained the means that you pray that that end would come about. So we shouldn't just say, well, God's going to do what he's going to do. God has ordained that we pray and that our prayers be the means that he brings about these things. In Acts chapter 27, here's an interesting illustration. God revealed his divine decree ahead of time, unusually. Um, He revealed it to Paul. Paul was in a ship, and God revealed to him that none of those who were on the ship would perish in the storm. They would all be saved. But if they were going to be saved, they... They needed to do some things, and they had to. They let down the anchors. They threw out the cargo. They even had to make free choices to stay on the ship. All of these would be the means by which they would be saved, even though God had determined that none would be lost. If they did not observe the means, that is, staying with the ship, they would not be saved. But in the end, everything happened exactly as the Lord had determined. This is the the way that we say that God's providence over everything does not exclude our use and our responsible use and and, uh, uh, use of the means that God uh, gives us to bring those things about. Now, paragraph 3 says that all of these things, like our prayers, our witnessing, our making plans, um, all of these are God's ordinary use, uh, His ordinary means to bring about His purposes. But He's not bound by any particular means. Because He's what? Because He's God, right? God's free to work within the means that he normally chooses, that he has ordained to be used, but he is not bound by them. Examples in Scripture, um, you can find examples of God's working, as the confession says, without means or above means or against the ordinary means that he chooses. For example, you can think of an example of God bringing something about without any ordinary means. How about the virgin birth? There's an example where God brings about a birth, but not in any ordinary way. Or what about God's working above means? Consider the conception of Isaac, whose conception was also not ordinary. His parents were beyond childbearing years. Or God even working against means, as it were. You remember the story where Elisha 
um, is, is with some workmen and they lose an axe head and it goes in the water and he creates, makes the axe head float, which seems to be against the ordinary course of nature, which is part of the means that God chooses to bring his will about. But God is not, God is not bound by any of these things, the confession reminds us. But it is his ordinary, um, manner to work within the means that he has ordained and for us to be diligent with those means. No one should say, well, I'm poor just because God chose that I was going to be poor if we also don't bother to go out and get a job and work hard and be diligent, right? God demands that we make good use of the means that we're given. Then um, also paragraph four, now we come to the relation of providence to the fact of sin. If God is in control of everything, if his, if, he's, if his providence ordains all things, then what about sin? That's the question. And here's the statement. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God are so far manifest themselves in his providence that his determinate counsel extendeth even to the first fall, that is the fall of Adam and Eve, and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, which also he most wisely and powerfully boundeth, and otherwise ordereth and governeth in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends. Yet so, as the sinfulness of their acts proceedeth not proceedeth only from the creatures and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. What is this doing? It's just describing the mystery of God's providence, that he's over everything and yet not responsible for, uh, not directly responsible for evil and sin. He's not guilty of sin in any way whatsoever. Providence, though, even encompasses evil and sin. It's not approved by God. It's not the moral will of God or the revealed will of God, nor is God in any way the author, the immediate cause of sin. The end of the paragraph says that the sinfulness of their acts proceeds only from the creatures. The sinfulness of those sinful acts is attributable only to those creatures and not to God. And yet, it does say that God controls them. God governs them and God directs them, all of them, in what we might call God's will of decree. God decreed all things whatsoever come to pass. This doesn't mean that it's just a bare permission. Sometimes we talk about the permissive will of God, right? If God allows something to happen like sin or evil, we say that's the permissive will of God. And and there is a sense in which that's right, but the confession wants to say that it's not a bare permission, as if somehow those things are outside of God's control, but he just allows them, uh, he allows something to be outside of his plan. No, even God's choice to allow a person to rebel is itself a choice. And God is free in all of his choices to do what he does or to do otherwise. So it is not a bare choice 
But God does allow evil and sin in His world. And yet it says also that He boundeth them. Maybe I should have used an updated version of this uh, wording because it is a little hard to follow sometimes. But the idea is that God puts boundaries on sin. And of course, one of the most uh, poignant examples of that is, uh, well, you tell me. What would be a good example? God saying, this far and no further. Huh? Who? The, the sea? Yeah, God puts a boundary on the sea, right? I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of, somebody said Job. Job, yes, that's the one I was thinking of. Job, remember Satan says, you know, I'll do this and I'll do that. Or, you know, God says, you can do this, but don't go any further. So Satan's bringing this evil into the world, but it's under God's absolute sovereignty. Satan is immediately responsible for the evil that he brings. Um, God has good purposes in it. Um, there's dual purposes at work here. Satan has an intention, but God has an intention. But it's all bounded by God. It's controlled by God. And then finally, paragraph 5 tells us some of God's most holy purposes. I said God has a good purpose, even in the bad. It gives us examples of some of God's holy purposes in allowing sin even sin in the life of believers at times. Let's read it together. Paragraph 5. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts. Why? Why would God allow his children to sin? Well, one, to chastise them for their former sins. Or two, to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they may be humbled. Or three, to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself. Or four, to make them ever more watchful against all future occasions of sin. And five, sometimes we just don't know. And we just have to say, for other just and holy ends. So that whatever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment, for his glory and for their good. And I really think that paragraph should be a sermon one of these days, so... Maybe we'll come back to that. But some God is, God is up to good even in allowing sin. Greater ultimate good for his, for his children. Now, paragraph 6 then. As for those wicked and ungodly men whom God as the righteous judge for former sin doth blind and harden, from them he not only withholdeth his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding and wrought upon their hearts, but sometimes also withdraweth the gifts which they had. Which reminds me of Jesus saying to him that does not have from him it will be taken away. It withdraweth the gifts that he had and exposeth them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin, and withal gives them over 
to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they hardened themselves under those means which God useth for the softening of others. This paragraph talks about the, God's providence even in the hardening of men's hearts. And this is probably one of the, the hardest um, manifestations of God's providence to grapple with um, where we are now. Notice that the confession says on the one hand that God the righteous judge for former sin doth blind and harden. So God blinds and hardens as he wills. But on the other hand, it says, it comes to pass that they harden themselves under those means which God useth. And I think if you want a case study of this, of what it looks like to have a hardened heart, for God to harden a heart, for a person to harden his heart, and how those things are all found right there together, just read the account of Pharaoh and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. This is found in Exodus chapters 4 through 14. Fourteen times in that passage is a reference to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. If you want to go back and listen to a sermon on it, you can listen to the sermon that I preached on Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 18, where Paul expounds on that. But the hardening of a heart, in one sense, is that person's own choice. He is hardening his heart. But on another level, it is God's choice to harden that person's heart. Somebody gave an illustration like this. You could take a, imagine a, a clay brick, and that brick is out there in the sun. And all that that represents Pharaoh's heart, right? And all that God has to do to harden Pharaoh's heart is just to remove, removes any, any moisture and shade that that thing has, any, um, it just exposes it and lets it become what it's going to become. He re- when, he, when the moisture is removed, that thing gets hard and solid, and that is just like it is when God removes himself from a person, as it were, and leaves him to his own devices, to his own hardness of heart. This is a choice of God. This is within God's control. But the blame for the nature of that hardness of heart belongs to the man himself. He is becoming more and more of what he is and what he's determined to be. So, The Bible teaches us that God's providence extends over everything, including even evil and sin, though He is not in any way the author of it and is not immediately responsible for sin in any fashion, yet He uses it for His own good purposes. And you can't think of any better illustration than what God did on the cross, right? The cross is the ultimate place where these tensions buck up against each other in a way that we can't fully explain, but is most glorious. The cross is the ultimate display of human rebellion against God, of sin of the highest degree. And yet it is at the exact same moment in the providence of God, in the sovereignty of God, the 
perfect display of God's love and grace and forgiveness, redemption in Christ. If God is not sovereign, then there is no hope for us, but God in His sovereignty brought about the death of Christ and brings about all things, even sin in the world, has ordained it for His own good purposes. And that brings us to the third or the final paragraph, paragraph 7, and that is the relationship of providence to God's care for the church. Last paragraph. As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so God's providentially governing everything in the world, so after a more special manner it maketh care it taketh care of his church and disposeth all of all things to the good thereof. In other words, on the one hand, God's God's providentially in control of everything, but He's especially concerned for the good of His church, which is, to me, just a reworded expression of Romans 8.28. God works everything together. For what? For the good of those who love Him. For the good of those who are called by Him. He's working for their ultimate good. In other words, the church is the focal point of all of the providences of God among all of the people and the nature and creation. All of it is being worked out for the good of His people especially. What a comfort it is in the midst of when someone does something terrible to you, Someone sins against you. Someone does something that affects you and harms you to not have to say, this was outside of God's control because that was sin, that was evil, that was a horrific thing. But to be able to say, no, God, the good God is working all things. I mean, everything. Even free choices of sinful people. He is working it all together for good for His people. God's Absolute sovereignty over all those things is the bedrock of our Christian hope. That's the doctrine of providence. And then, quickly, the uh, doctrine of the fall. Let's see, do we have time? Are we done? Do we do it in 10 minutes? Let's see. Uh, Y'all are being very, very patient. Chapter 6. Let's go right to paragraph 1. This is the nature of the fall. Although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, which had been unto life had he kept it, and threatened death upon the breach thereof, yet he did not long abide in this honor, that is, man. Satan, using the subtlety of the serpent to subdue Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit, which God hath pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purposed it, uh, having purposed in order to order it to his own glory. He purposed to order the fall to his own glory. So the nature of the fall. What is the nature of the fall? Well, Man did, quote, willfully transgress the law of their creation. That is that internal moral law which God had put in their hearts. And they transgressed, in particular, 
the command given unto them. That is the positive law that God gave them about not eating of the tree. They willfully transgress. In other words, what do we learn from this? What is sin? Sin is a transgression of the law of God. It's a rejection of God's rule and a demand for human autonomy. The nature of the fall. Number two, the result of the fall. Second paragraph. Our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. The result of the fall, it says in this paragraph, is death. We know that, right? The wages of sin is death. But it's not just physical. As the paragraph says, we are dead to dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. In other words, what we're talking about here is radical depravity. Radical depravity. De- sinful in all of the faculties of our and parts of our soul and body. So, sin affects our bodies, right? We die. Death is an enemy. Sometimes people say, well, death is just a natural part of the circle of life. No, it's not. Death is an enemy. It's a punishment. It's a bad thing. Secondly, sin not only affects our bodies, but it affects our faculties. So what do we mean by that? Our minds, our emotions, our wills. And in the fall, man lost. He was so corrupted that he has lost his ability not to sin. Now we are not able not to sin. And the descriptions of our sinfulness in the fall are formidable. This is why this is, you know, this is the starting place in understanding grace. We talked about this last week, right? The starting place, for me anyway, in understanding grace is to understand this bedrock thing, that we are radically sinful. And by radically sinful, we mean sinful in all of our faculties. Here's the way the Scripture says it. I'll just give you a few verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were what? dead in your trespasses and sins. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Look at the last phrase. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is a really radical statement about human depravity. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 11. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Romans 7, verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. In me, as a natural person, there is nothing good at all. 
Titus 3, verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, and slaves to our various passions and pleasures. Human beings weren't free in, in like seeking after God. We were enslaved to our own natures. That's what the Bible teaches. This is radical depravity. This is why John chapter 6, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And later he said, No one can come to me, in verse 65, No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by my Father. I mean, God's got to do something for you in order to save you. God's got to take the initiative because if the Bible's right about how radically sinful we are, then there's no hope for any of us apart from that. So I think you, you, if, you're, if you're struggling with you know, God's sovereign grace, you, you start here. You start by being honest with what the Bible says about who we are, where we are. But Adam and Eve might have been they, uh, they might have fallen and lost their ability to come to God, but what about the rest of us? I mean, Adam and Eve fell, but I won't fall. I'll obey God, right? This is a, there was an ancient heresy called Pelagianism. Pelagianism taught that each human was created innocent, without a sinful nature, like Adam in the beginning, morally um, pure and able to choose good and evil, that nothing that radical happened when Adam fell. I mean, something bad happened for him, but not for the rest of us. But what does the Scripture say? Well, here's the way the confession summarizes it. If I can find my copy again. All these papers, here it is. Paragraph 3. They, talking about Adam and Eve, being the root and by God's appointment, standing in the room and stead of all mankind, the guilt of their of sin, the guilt of the sin that they committed, was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. That means every human being that's descended from Adam and Eve, being now conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. This paragraph teaches the doctrine that Christians have called original sin. This is the um, a summary of the classic passage where God speaks about this in an extended way, which is Romans chapter 5. Hugely important passage. They used to teach kids in school this little phrase to learn their alphabet. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. That's this doctrine. There was a, there were Adam and, and, and all of us, there's a solidarity um, on our part. There is a solidarity in the fall. Our confession, or this confession of faith, identifies our solidarity with Adam in two ways. We're almost done. How are we connected to Adam? Well, number one, it says that Adam and Eve were the root of all mankind. In other words, there is a natural solidarity that we have with Adam and Eve. We're all descended from them, every one of us. We were in them in seed form, if you will. 
there is a solidarity of human nature. And hey, if you want to, if you doubt that, just have a baby and wait a little while. And you'll see, sure enough, they have uh, the same nature as Adam and Eve had, the same sinful, rebellious desire for autonomy, no matter what the rules are. And secondly, our solidarity with Adam and Eve is, quote, by God's appointment. That is, Adam stood in the room and stead of all mankind, which is just a way to say he stood in the place of us. He represented us. We're represented. Not only are we naturally sort of offspring of Adam and Eve, but we're representatively um, uh, standing there in Adam, uh, Adam and Eve. They were representatives. Adam was the federal head, the head of a whole body that's connected to him. Kind of like our federal government, right? Our federal government um, enters into a treaty of some sort. We're all sort of bound by that, for better or for worse. There's a, there's a solidarity that we have. Um, and, of course, this is a, analogous to our connection to Christ, who is our new covenant head. So here's, here's where we say you're either in Adam, represented by him, with all, as, as we sing, um, my life is hid with Christ on high, or um, my life is wholly bound to his. We, you have to say that with Adam. My life is wholly bound to his, or it's wholly bound to Christ. My life is hid in Adam, or it's hid in Christ. I have one of these two representative heads, covenant heads. This is our solidarity in the fall. And then finally, paragraphs 4 and 5, the entailments of the fall. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to do all evil, from that original corruption, it says, do proceed all actual transgressions. That is, actual in our experience. Where does sin come from? From sinfulness. Why do we sin? Because we're sinners. Right? This is that, this is what, what that's teaching. Then paragraph five, the corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin. In other words, there is this doctrine of remaining or indwelling sin, even in believers, that we are not yet, until the consummation, delivered absolutely and finally and completely from this sinfulness, though it is pardoned, but an actual experience from this sinfulness with which we are tainted as human beings. All right, so that was very quickly the doctrine. And you see that in, um, let me just finish with this. First John 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Right? That's what God, God does not want us to sin. But if anyone does sin, because we will, then we have an advocate with the Father that is Jesus Christ the righteous. And that is the blessing of the gospel which is going to be introduced in the next paragraph, 
uh, the next chapter on the covenant, God's covenant of grace. Oh, praise the Lord for His grace. All of these chapters um, set up the, the, uh, the righteous rule of God over all things, but remind us by the fall that we need a redemption that is only in Christ Jesus. So praise the Lord for that.